God is good all the time. Hey, want to welcome our CM campus. Welcome everybody that joins us online each week. And, and tonight, we just want to extend the worship space all the way to the back of the cafe. We just want to declare that this is holy ground. It is space that is set aside. So we're just going to worship. Just worship where you're most comfortable. And, and we're glad that you're here. 500. One of the incredible things about Christ Church this year has been you have been so intentional about inviting friends, neighbors, strangers to church. We are focusing on Wednesday night, going deeper. We've got some special cards. They're on the table right outside. One way to do this is just to hand the card to somebody. But there's another way to do this. You can take a photo of this with your smartphone, trim it all up, get it looking square and good, and then you literally can text that to someone you know with an invitation to join you on a Wednesday night. Maybe say, hey, we'll meet you at 6 o'clock, love to buy you supper at the cafe, stay and worship with us. Just a great way to go. But remember, we're not just inviting people to Sundays, we've got a wonderful service here on Wednesday night. Sunday doesn't work for everybody, and some people like Sunday and Wednesday, and some people, this is your worship service. However it is that rolls, I'm really, really glad that you're a part of Going Deeper. Also tonight, we know that, you know, it, it's, it's hot, it's summer, kids are home. If you're finding yourself a little pinched financially, immediately after the service tonight, if you walk through both sets of these doors and take a right Reverend Carmen's office is on the left. We have $100 grocery cards that we would be glad to give you. And with our prayers and with our compliments, just to help you through the summer. So if you are needing that, uh, if that would be a blessing to you, uh, stop by Reverend Carmen's office after church, pick up a $100 grocery card, and realize that when things are a little tight, you've got a church here who cares about you. you got a church that cares about you. Before I go on long international trips, I normally update my last letter to my family. You guys ever written that last letter to your family? Maybe your will, that kind of thing. I update my last letter to my family. Though I know this will probably not be my last words to my family, every trip involves risk. So my potential words need to be carefully weighed and carefully measured. At the risk of losing hard-nosed points, I must confess that when I update my last letter, I normally get a little misty. You guys ever had that? You're writing something like that and you just get a little misty for two reasons. One is I'm thinking about if my family's reading this, what a difficult time they must be going through. And on the other hand, I'm just thinking about how much I'm going to miss me. I don't know if you've ever written a letter like that, but if you did, what would you say to the people who love you most and best? What if you thought that letter was going to be your final correspondence with them? I got a feeling you'd say the most important things. Understand that this is exactly where Paul finds himself when he's writing Philippians, exactly. Paul is writing down this letter to a Philippian church. He writes from a Roman 
prison cell. He's awaiting capital trial. During these months of incarceration, Paul has had a lot of time to reflect on his life, places he's been, the churches he started, the people he's influenced. You ever have a time where you just sort of take stock of your life? I, I do that more as I get older. I, I don't know why, but I always call it, I flip over the back of my baseball card and just kind of look at the statistics side and just kind of take stock of, of my life. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Certainly he's hopeful that he will again be able to make the 613-mile trip north from Rome to Philippi, but every day he sits in jail, he realizes that's increasingly doubtful. It's much more likely this will be his last letter to his spiritual sons and daughters in Philippi before he's executed. In our text, Paul offers what will end up being his final words to his closest friends, his most ardent supporters, his key financial benefactors. And I can easily imagine that there are tears in Paul's eyes as he puts pen to parchment. Here's our text, verse 1. I love you and I long to see you. There are a few more endearing things that you can say to someone than I love you and I miss you. You know, regardless of what comes next, that's a good start. It's just a good start. Some of you maybe were raised in households where people weren't comfortable saying, I love you. I I was really blessed to be in a household where we said, "I, I love you all the time. It was a regular part of our family and our family life. And it's been passed down to, to our family as well. I love you. I miss you. Boy, whatever's coming after that, it's a great start. I think we need to be more conscious of letting the people we love know that we love them. We need to tell them. You say, ah, oh, they know. Eh, they don't know. They know what we tell them. I love you. I long to see you. You are my joy and my crown, so I stand fast in the Lord. This is really interesting. Paul is saying, because I love you so much, it actually helps me stay strong. My love for you helps me stay strong. Have you ever had a season in life where you were really going through it, but you had to be strong for someone else? I mean, you were really going through a rough time, but you had to be strong for the people you love. You might have been the one who was sick. But you had to be strong for your friends and for your family. Sometimes just knowing you love others and are loved by others enables us to endure even the worst of circumstances. We're always going to do better when we're loved. We're always going to do better when we are loved. Paul's circumstances are dire by any measure. And yet he stands strong for the sake of his calling for the sake of the people God has entrusted to him, and for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. Stand strong. Two words are translated crown in Greek. One refers to the crown a king wears, and the other one refers to a crown that an athlete received when they won a race. We might call that a laurel. The former denotes position, and the latter a prize that denotes a victor. So a a king, the crown says, I am a king. In a race, a laurel back then would say, I am the winner. 
a crown. Paul uses the latter word here, the, the word for winning a race. And he considers his true crown to be the people that he's led to Christ. The people into whom he has poured out his life and made disciples. That is his true crown. I think it's really important to understand that the lasting legacy of any of us is not going to be defined by the number of zeros in our bank account, the rank on our shoulder, the location of our home, or the awards on our mantle. Eternal currency is exchanged in the impact for Christ we make upon human souls. Those to whom Paul writes will carry on his ministry and his legacy. And it's the souls that he has led to Christ, discipled for Christ, that are truly the prophet of his life. They're the prophet of his life. Paul next offers seven very practical pieces of advice. And, and you, you might say, why? He knows he's going to die. Why is he going to give this advice now? First of all, things are not going to turn out well for Paul. He increasingly knows this. And he is not going to give Satan one inch of the ground that he has taken during his ministry years. He's not going to give back to Satan one soul who has been converted. He's not going to give back to Satan one church that has been planted. There has to be a point in our spiritual life when we say we have made great gains in the Lord and Satan, you're getting none of it back. None of it back. This is seven ways to hang on to what you have. Seven ways to hang on to what you have. Because you can gain ground, but if you don't know how to maintain it, Satan will rob you blind. He'll rob you blind. So seven ways to maintain spiritual gains. If you're taking notes, now's when you do it. Number one, mend relational fences. Verse 2 says, settle your disagreements. There's two women in the Philippian church who have been instrumental in Paul's ministry. And they are now cross-threaded with one another. And they're causing drama in the church. Paul's encouragement to them is represented by a Greek word, which literally says, you two need to be of one mind. Paul takes no position on the substance of their disagreement. He doesn't weigh in on who's right or who's wrong. He honestly doesn't care. He's just saying, y'all get this worked out. Y'all get this worked out. It's kind of like when you were a kid, you're traveling across the country, and you're in the back seat, and you're fussing with your siblings, and your parents yell at you. They don't care who's right. They don't care who's wrong. They just want you to shut up. That's all they want. And they want you to get on board with what's happening, which is being silent. What Paul is saying here, I don't care who's right. I don't care who's wrong in this. I'm not taking sides. You two need to work it out. Work it out. Stop the drama. Work it out for the mission of Christ. And let's get back to what God has called us to do. At its root, church drama is always self-centered. And it runs antithetical to the mission, which is always God-centered. Drama is centered on us. It is anthrocentric. Mission is centered on God. It is theocentric. 
When it comes to drama, everything is going to be about us, how we feel, who's done us wrong, what we think, how happy we are, how mad we are, how we look, who we love or who we hate, where we go. Wah, 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 wah. Social media and reality television only add fuel to the inferno of dysfunctional and egocentric theater. I see the ads for these shows, and I think, I cannot believe one person in the world watches any of this. I just can't believe it. And then it occurs to me, maybe this makes people feel better about their own life to see people more whacked out than them. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe that's, that's what makes them feel better. But here's the deal. Paul's saying, ladies, you two are fussing in the church. This isn't really about you. A good baseball umpire, a good sports official, realizes the game isn't about them. Nobody comes to see the umpires. Are you aware of that? No one comes to see the umpires. You know, no one's ever said, man, I'm going to go to Bush Stadium because so-and-so's calling this game. I love the way that they umpire. You ever see the way he calls a batter out? It is the most awesome thing in sport. Nobody says that. The game is a contest between athletes. Umpires are simply there to ensure fair play. The best compliment you can give an umpire or an official after a game is that you didn't even realize they were there. That's the best compliment you could give them. A referee who thinks they're the star of the game or the match is a detriment to the game itself. It is somebody who doesn't know their role. Somebody doesn't know their role. Paul reminds the church that ministry is not about us. It's about what Christ has done in us and wants to do through us to reach out to others. A good thing for serious Christians to pray is this. Almighty God, please allow me to live in such a way that I call attention to you and never to myself. I think John the Baptist probably has one of the greatest lines in the Bible. I must decrease and Jesus must increase. When being right is more important than being in relationship. When getting our way is more important than the greater good, when getting credit is more important than the mission, the glorification of self will be our legacy. And if self is being glorified, there will always be drama every single time because that's the fuel drama burns. But when being in relationships more important than being right, when the greater good is valued above personal preference and mission is valued above personal accolades, effectiveness will be our Legacy. We must constantly be looking to decrease that Christ may increase in us. You'd be surprised what God can do through people like you and me if we don't care who gets the credit. Verse two, number two, fill up with joy. You want to hang on to what God's done in you? Fill up with joy. Verse four, always be full of the joy of the Lord. We're all full of something and we all leak. Amen? We're all full of something and we all leak. I love people who love life. I love people who love to laugh. I love people who love people. I love people who just love serving God. Uh, I love people with a twinkle in their eyes, some pep in their step, dreams in their heart, a little passion in their life. I look like people, I love people who just have this feeling that life is good and they like being a part of it. I love people who are full of joy. They, they leak all over the place. The world is a better place for them. I love positive energy people, people that just walk in a room and they bring energy. Have you ever known any black hole people? 
You guys familiar with black holes in the cosmos? They just sort of collapse and they suck everything in all around them, you know? You can lose like a galaxy or two, right, with a black hole. You ever known black hole people? They sort of walk into a room and they just, all the energy's gone. They just bring this with them. Man, I like upbeat people. I like people bring energy with them. They bring passion with them. That, that's what Jesus has for us. Paul argues that if God has his proper place in our life, that joy will be a transforming and defining characteristic of our lives. So we're thinking, pastor, are you saying that because I have a terrible attitude, I spend most of my life feeling sorry for myself, and I'm a gossiping busybody, that I'm not in proper relationship with God? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Boom, you nailed it right there. Even in his last hour, Paul's joy abounds because he knows he's run the race well. Jesus is right in that jail cell with him. And where Jesus is, there is peace. And where there is peace, there is joy. Joy has nothing to do with what's going on in your life. Nothing. It has everything to do with the presence of Christ in your life. Number three, control your impulses. Control your impulses. Verse five, be fair and level-headed in all you do because the Lord's coming back soon. How's that? Be fair and level-headed in all you do because the Lord's coming back soon. Were I to give a single piece of advice for living in general, it would be this. Think before you act. Think before you act. Just think. I've decided that I'm going to treat people well. That decision has already been made for me. Before any circumstances come, I've already decided I'm going to treat people well. And you may be thinking, are you referring to even the people who don't treat you well? That's why I had to make up my mind on this in the first place. I don't have to wonder about how to treat people who like me. I treat them really well. I like them. I like them. It's people don't like me that I need to make my mind up on. And I'm saying to you, I've made my mind up on them before I even know they're out there. Treating people well who have treated us poorly is really a celebration of what God is doing in us. It's really an honest and legitimate point of rejoicing. And, and particularly if, if you treat people better than you used to. It's a sign of Christian growth. A few years back, our church softball team was playing a very tense game, and tempers were flying. Uh, their team had a really mouthy guy, really mouthy guy. And finally, one of our guys had enough of it. And not everybody on our, on our softball team was entirely sanctified. They all were really good ball players, though. And he just had enough of it. He just had enough of it. He gets in the guy's grill. There's a verbal altercation. Both teams are gathered around. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the oldest guy here. So I stood close to my son's act. If something's going to happen, I'm just going to take my chances that he's going to protect me. That's really where we were. There was a tense moment. And when things de-escalated, 
I walked up to the teammate who confronted the mouthy guy on the other team. And I said something that's pretty typical for me. I said, how did you think that went? <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, great. A year ago, I would have drilled that idiot. <laughs> win! That's a win! That is an honest moment when a new Christian could say to his pastor, apart from what Christ has done in me, the marginal response I had to this would have been impossible because a year ago, it would have been really, really bad. You know what? That guy's continued to walk with the Lord. I bet if that same thing happened today, it'd even go better. Sometimes we get down on ourselves because we're not perfect. I think we should rejoice because we're making progress. We should rejoice because we're making progress. When? So why are we to be level-headed? He said, because Jesus is coming back. You know? You know, it's sort of like, you know, get in a better mood. Jesus is coming back. It's sort of like, you know, you don't want to be all whacked out when Jesus returns. He'll have trouble identifying you as one of his. Why are we to be level-headed? Because life on earth is a fleeting enterprise. You see, no matter how stressed you are tonight about your health or your finances, no matter how stressed you are about American politics or what's going on in your family, do you realize it'll all be over soon enough? It'll all be over soon enough. While we don't have all the time in the world to forgive and be forgiven, we do have right now. While we don't have all the time in the world to get our hearts right with God, we, we do have right now. Well, we don't have all the time in the world to invite that friend or neighbor to worship or to witness to our faith. We do have right now. The clock's ticking. It's best that we keep our cool because when the buzzer sounds, the game's over. The game is over when the buzzer sounds. So we best crack at this now. Next thing to maintain is to pray. Is to pray. Don't worry. Pray. Verse 6, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. Obviously, we skipped one, so this is actually four if you're taking notes. When circumstances seem overwhelming or life's on our last nerve, we have a choice. We can pray or we can worry, but we can't pray and worry. Prayer and worry are mutually exclusive realms of existence. A lot of people confuse prayer with worrying with their eyes closed. You can pray or you can worry, but you can't pray and worry. Prayer is an important part of biblical teaching. And really, nobody in the Bible makes prayer a more simple process than Paul. He encouraged us to tell God what we need and to thank God for meeting our needs. The obvious question here is why should we have to tell an all-knowing God what we need? That's fair. And the answer is simple. If God met all of our needs without us asking, we wouldn't be aware of the great things God is doing in our lives. But when we formally ask and God abundantly supplies and we give thanks, proper perspective is maintained between creation and creator. I believe that miracles happen all the time. People will say to me, why don't we see miracles like we saw, in the, like we read about in the New Testament? 
And I tell them, I see miracles like that. I think miracles like that happen all the time, but we don't pray for them. We don't pray for them, and we don't recognize them when we come, when they come. I'm going to be real clear. If you don't pray for miracles, you're not going to see miracles, because even if God does one, it'll be invisible to you. Even if God does a miracle, it'll be invisible to you. You won't see it. That's why it's so important. You find out somebody's sick. You find out somebody's going through something. It's so important that you pray with them. Why? Because we're evoking the presence of God into that situation, and the person you are praying for is now aware that that God is involved in this. It, it enables them to lean in, but also when that situation rectifies one way or the other, that person understands that they have God to thank for what God's done. Otherwise, they're just going to think, well, I got better. Isn't that a great piece of luck? When we pray for people, we help people identify God's miraculous work. So pray, don't worry. Don't worry, pray. Next is receive God's peace. Verse 7, if you do this, his peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. Prayer must not be an attempt to lobby God toward our agenda. Prayer must be a plea to be brought into the will of God. And it is in God's will that we find peace. Greek word translated guard here, guard your mind, is a word meaning to stand on guard, to attentively protect. When we are in right relationship with God, God attentively protects our hearts and our minds. Attentively protects them. Peace is the supernatural and unavoidable outcome of a life that is centered on Christ. So if you have peace in your life, that is an evidence that your life is centered on Christ. If you don't have peace in your life, it is evidence that your life is centered on other things. It's just centered on other things. Biblical peace is never the absence of conflict. In a fallen world, we will never be free of conflict. It is the presence of Christ. If salvation is God's gift to the sinner, peace is God's gift to the saint. God's gift to the saint. A lot of you want peace in your life. We all want peace in our lives. And a lot of you say, okay, how do I find peace? Wrong question. The right question is, how do I get in proper alignment with God? Because when you are aligned, you will find peace. Next, keep it positive. Just, just keep it positive. I believe the words of our mouth are pretty powerful. Keep it positive. Verse 8, focus on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When I was a youth director back in the roaring 80s, one of my favorite messages was called Garbage In, Garbage Out. And the idea was really simple. If you fill your mind with bad stuff, you're going to get consumed by bad stuff. But if we fill our minds with good stuff, we will be consumed by good stuff. To use the old axiom, you sort of are what you eat. You sort of are what you eat. Last week, Melissa and I watched the latest installment of Mission Impossible. I really liked it because it was less complicated than the previous movies. I tell Melissa the Mission Impossibles are way too complicated for people to watch. Melissa says you get up six times a movie, and every time you get up, you miss things. Clearly, I'm correct. 
So I may get up six times during the movies, but I am telling you this, either I got up at more strategic times or this movie was less complicated because I liked it a lot. I just was able to follow the whole thing. The week before we saw the final installment of the Indiana Jones franchise, which didn't really matter if you got up or not. It was all the same. In fact, you, there was one car scene in the Indiana Jones movie. If you would have got up, got popcorn, got a soda, gone to the restroom, and taken a nap, you would come back and the car scene would still be going. <laughs> the movies were great. I really enjoyed both of them. But the 16 hours of previews before they began <laughs> featured some films that were utterly disturbing. Utterly disturbing. They weren't scary, they were demonic. I cannot imagine a person exposing themselves to two hours and a half of that demonic content without at least a little double crap getting in their heads. Is that a word, double crap? You guess what I'm talking about? I just don't know how to expose yourself to that and it not rub off on you. It's sort of like if you stood in the concession stand at the movies long enough, do you realize you'd smell like popcorn after a while? Right? There's like butterfly in the air. It just sort of sticks to you. You know? You smell like popcorn. You sit in that stuff, all that demonic stuff, it's going to stick to you. And I thought to myself, if this is what most people call entertainment, no wonder people are so whacked out today. No wonder they're so messed up today. Is your thought life all whacked out and messed up? Take a look at what you're putting in. Take a look at what you're putting in. You know a great way to look at it? Take Jesus to the movies with you. Is this something Jesus would want to see? If Jesus were going to the movies with you, is this something that he would say, wow, that's really great? Or would he go, kid, what are you doing? I think those are fair questions to ask. And if you struggle with your thought life, it is a fair question to ask, what are you inviting into your life? What are you inviting into your life? You put good stuff in, you get good stuff out. So keep it positive. Keep it positive. I want you to imagine that, let's just say you come to church an hour and a half a week. You're involved in a class or connect group, so there's another hour. You're part of some kind of outreach, like welcome home or something like that. And let's say that occupies a couple hours a month. Let's also imagine that you're reading the Bible each day with us. So this is what you're doing. It's, it's great. Those are all good things. Depending on your drive, you're pouring about six hours a week worth of really good stuff into your life. You're pouring about six hours a week of God's stuff into your life. That's wonderful. The problem is there is some 162 remaining hours in the week. And if you're putting garbage into your mind, the rest of the time, it's just not going to balance out. It's just not going to balance out. It's like eating spinach with an arsenic chaser and wondering why you're really not feeling better. So cut out the bad stuff, cold turkey. Just, just stop it. Are you watching things that don't glorify God? Cut it out. Are you looking at things that just get into your head? Cut it out. You say, well, it's just so tempting when I'm on my computer. Tell your computer you're nine years old 
And don't let, them, don't let them show you anything they don't think is appropriate for a nine-year-old. That'll still stress Jesus plenty, what the computer thinks is appropriate for a nine-year-old. But I'm just saying, if you can't handle it, block, block those stations. You know you can block stations on your TV? Do you know you can just hit this button and your whole TV goes off? <laughs> Seriously, it does. Your computer works the same way. You hit this button, gone. Awesome. What are you putting in? What are you putting in? Take every occasion you can to fill your mind with good stuff, with holy things, beautiful things, and just see what a difference it makes in your life. Cut out the bad, pour in the good, just see what a difference it makes. Next, put what you know into play. Verse 9, put into practice what I am teaching you. I don't think there's a person here would say, Paul has no idea what he's talking about. You're far better off living with a bad attitude, constant drama, consumed by worry, your, fear, your life out of control, and polluting your mind with ungodly things. I don't think anybody is arguing that Paul's right. Paul has spoken much about the transforming power of salvation, but in this letter, as he closes this thing, he's offering some really good practical advice. What he completely understands is that all of his advice won't do us one bit of good if we don't put it into practice. So what happens when we take these seven things and put them into practice? God will be with you. That's what happens. That's the end result. God will be with you. That's the promise. You say, well, I don't feel that God's really with me. Did you put those seven things into practice? A lot of times we want the results, but we don't, we don't want to do the work. Put those seven things into practice. It says God will be with you. You see, the true reward of Christianity is Christ, not what Christ can do for you. Every now and then, I have to remind myself of what I already know. Do you guys ever have to have a talk with yourself? Remember the old classic American song, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. Every now and then, I just have to sit right down and write myself a letter. Do you ever have to have a come to Jesus talk with you? You know, just, just have a come to Jesus talk with yourself. Sometimes I got to remind myself of what I already know. Now I got a pretty good idea of what I need to stay mentally and physically healthy. I know what I need to do. But I've got to tell you, if I don't watch it over time, my processes deteriorate. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? My processes deteriorate. How many times have you gotten a hold of a transforming truth only to let the whole thing slip away? How many times you really got a hold of something that was doing great good for you, only to let the whole thing slip away? There will be times in life when we're going to have to battle to get back to where we know we should be. Sometimes in life, you're going to have to battle to get back to where you were. Back to work it out. Back to eating horrible tasting things like vegetables. Back to drinking yucky stuff like water. Back to getting some sleep. Back to intentionally scheduling downtime. None of these things comes natural to me. Can I just be transparent? None of these things come natural to me. I could live off of Diet Coke, milkshakes, black coffee, pizza, cheeseburger, and Pop-Tarts. 100%. And I'd be happy, 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 and I'd have to shop at no other grocery store than Walgreens.
I tend to overschedule, overwork, overthink, stay up too late. I can go with months without hitting the brakes. To make things worse, when I initially put a healthier lifestyle into play, I don't immediately feel better. I feel worse. I remember last year, decided about a little bit before now, decided I just need to get a hold of things. You ever, I saw a picture of myself and I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought, good night. That dude's let himself go. And, and I, I thought, I, I got to do something about this. So I, I, I did a whole lot of things about it and, and made a lot of major changes in my life. Started eating, you know, something tasted good. I spit it out and, and, and I, I started exercising and doing all kinds of stuff. And so I'm doing all this, you know, and, and I started losing weight and, and, and people say, yeah, yeah, they'd walk up to me and go, boy, I bet you feel better. I said, you've got to be stinking kidding me. I feel terrible. Let me tell you when I felt good, when I was eating pizza, whenever I wanted, man, you want to be happy, just get a big old Chicago style pizza and have a race to the end. That's, that's awesome. Exercising, eating broccoli. That doesn't, no, no, I don't feel better. I don't feel better. So right away, I just didn't feel better at all. I'm sore for weeks and I'm always a cookie short of a proper meal. And I don't know about you, but my sensible lifestyle changes throw me off. They like throw my sleep patterns off. But in the end, I know what you know. Positive behaviors produce positive results positively every time. It's kind of boring, really. But in a fallen world, you do have to stay at it. You do have to stay at it. In our spiritual lives, we also have to remind ourselves of what we already know. Sometimes we just have to have a literal come to Jesus talk. Sometimes we just need to set ourselves down and set us straight. Most of us have a pretty good idea of what we need to stay spiritually healthy, but over time, our processes can deteriorate. How many times have you gotten a hold of a transforming spiritual truth? only to let it slip away? How many times you get in a good spiritual habit only to let it slip away? There'll be times where we got to battle to get back to where we know we should be. Back to making church attendance a top shelf priority. Back to daily Bible reading. Back to small group or Sunday school classes. Back to a structured prayer life. Back to tithing. Back to serving. Back to intentionally faith sharing. Back to inviting people to church. We got to get back to what we know. I fully realize when you do those things, you may not immediately feel better. I get it. In fact, you may immediately feel worse. You may have to recalibrate your calendar. Give up some things that you honestly enjoy. Start saying no. Reassess your priorities. Miss out on some things. I get it. I get all of it. But in the end, positive spiritual behaviors produce positive spiritual results positively every time. And if your relationship with God is good, everything it's good. And if your relationship with God is deteriorating, well, 